This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast on the Makery Network. I'm Jeff Fader, and boy, do I have a good guest today. My friend today, Ben Snoor. He comes from a long line of ranchers. He's a cowboy. He's a blacksmith, and he's a very accomplished hammer maker. And from what John Ariani tells me, I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel to have him on as a guest. How the hell are you, Ben? Fantastic. Really good. I forgot... I forgot one thing. You're not just Ben Snoor. You're Ben Snoor the third. I am. I am. And we've got little Benny P4 here in the house, too. He's sleeping right now. So I did a little bit of research on you and about the Snoor family. And I, I'm under the impression that you were named after your grandfather, not your father. Correct. Uh, and he was Ben Snoor Jr. And then his father was Ben Snoor the first, and Correct. did he work on a train? Was he a train conductor? Or he worked for the post office? Uh, boy, that's kind of a little bit outside of my realm of knowledge. I, I don't know that he did. He may because, have. It's interesting because I know that your grandfather was, um, was celebrated in the uh, Ranchers Hall of Fame. He yep. was he was inducted as a Rancher Hall of Fame. I'm just interested in you grew your family was are, is from Arizona. Uh, yeah, my great granddad Benny P. the first homesteaded our ranch out there back in the days of Geronimo and Pancho Villa, huh. uh, where Geronimo surrendered was actually on our ranch, and our southern fence was about two miles from the border of Mexico. Gee, wow! So, so he's so your family started ranching back in Way the back 1800s. When. Yeah, I want to say then, our our brand was registered in eighteen. I want to say eighteen ninety three. Wow! Because that's because when you start to Google Ben Snoor, you're you're coming up with you're coming up with some hairy stuff. You're coming up with like deeds and stuff, you know. So it's not like <laughs> it's not a lot of articles. No, but it's, it's fast- not. It's fascinating because, you know, as a as a, I was supposed to be, my father's name was Ben, and my mother wanted to name me Benjamin Jr. And so I was going to be Benjamin Jr., but the problem was because my mother's Roman Catholic and my father's Jewish, in the Jewish religion, you don't name someone after someone who's alive. It's like a bad, it's a oh, really? bad situation. Yeah, it's super like, it's like a, I don't know what it has to do with God, but I think it's just like, don't fuck with God and just, you know, just keep keep, keep my name out that, of it. That's some sort of bad omen for the future. Yeah, it's, it's referred to as a canahura. So don't, you're putting a canahura, it's like a jinx on the whole situation. All right. So my, my mom wanted me to be Ben Jr. But the funny thing is, is I wonder, because you're Ben Snoor third, does that, do you feel like a, the pressure of a legacy? No. That's a good answer. Uh, you know, I just kind of try to do things that'll make my family proud and be proud of me. It's not necessarily that I've got to live up to a certain expectation or do better than anyone else. I just try to do what I can to make people proud of me. Make my dad proud, make my granddad, mom, everybody proud of me. So so when your your grandfather who was an exceptional rancher, 
Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, when he was a cow, what kind of ranching was he doing? I don't, you have to, under, you have to, pardon me, because I don't know really much about ranching. What did, what was he doing as a rancher? You know, everybody th- has this, you know, picturesque idea of, of being a rancher and a cowboy. And especially down there in southern Arizona, 90% of it is just keeping water running. Right. It's just, I mean, hell, it's desert. It's high desert. There's no grass. You're dependent on rain. You're dependent on wind to make water through windmills because there was no solar wells back then. Uh, it's just trying to keep water going, keep everything alive. Huh. And so it's, and then also, I mean, way back when, it was keeping people from stealing your your cows and all that uh my great granddad had a brother named james he was murdered over he had some land with water and somebody else wanted that water and so they murdered him and then got it wow it's old old west shit because i mean that name ben snoor is like right out of doc holiday and wyatt earp i mean that is a classic well interestingly enough my grandmother's dad was a banker in tombstone during the Doc Holiday wide herb days. Really? Yep. And what stories did you hear about that? Basically wide herb was an asshole. That's about <laughs> it. Is that some saw you know what good good I'm glad you told me that. Because who's the guy who played a wide herb in the last movie that uh Kirk uh was it uh, uh who played wide herb? It was there's oh, a couple hell. guys, right? Yeah, who Kirk Kirk, Kirk, Kirk Rug Russell? Yes right. Kurt Russell played wide herb. Yeah. And then was it and Kevin he was a Foster great one. too? Who's that? Didn't they come up with, there was two wider yeah, movies Yeah, Kevin Costner, right? There was two of them right then at the same time. And I really like, I, I like Kevin Costner in the modern cowboy show that he's doing. Really oh, love Yellowstone. Oh, hell, it's great. Well, so so that that's interesting because I know that that's like a big topic now with modern day ranching. So so what do you think the similarities are between the way they used to ranch when you're, you know, killing people over water to now? Is it just more instead of killing it's ki- them, you're just killing, selling, sitting it's killing them with politics? Uh, that's what I. That's what I was. I was gonna. I was gonna go that's to it. with a lawsuit. I mean, it's but. it's trying to uh, cheat people out of their land, cheat people out of water, so I can have your water and your land. Right. And you know that there's some of that that goes on. Not any really around me that I know of. Right. And I'm sure it's worse in other places. But it's kind of like everything else. That's a TV show. Right. It's it's dramatized. It's 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 fascinating to me because it, it is it is a lifestyle that I can't even fathom. It's basically the idea of learning how to ride horses and learning how to rope cattle and then doing all these things and then kind of moving them along on the prairie. It's it's totally foreign. I mean, you might as well be from another planet to me. <laughs> so I'm fascinated well, we're, by we're it. We're a long ways from New York. It you nearly are, is another are. planet. So now you're on a you're on a ranch that is not your standard ranch it's it's filled with exotic animals right uh we've had more exotics at times right now we're kind of focusing on elk and elk hunting and a little bit of deer hunting right we've had the some of the african stuff we've got zebras but the african stuff doesn't seem to do just especially great here the winters are pretty hard on them and most people hear texas and they think oh hell it's gotta only get down to 60 in the winter but there are weeks where it doesn't get above zero. Huh. So then all of a sudden you got a bunch of dead zebra <laughs> frozen to their, frozen in their hooves. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Jeez. Well, so, and one of the things, and it's, 
it's not necessarily that they die, but some of them, like right around their antlers, the base of their antlers, where all the blood flow comes into the antler to keep, or the horn in most of these cases, right, flows in to keep it that horn alive and healthy. It's not meant for cold weather, and so it gets frostbite right around that the base of that horn. And huh. then as soon as it thaws out, it's the horn has died, and so they snap it off. What what do you, so when when you were younger and you had to learn how to you know your you, was your your father was a rancher as well yeah my gra- dad grew up on the ranch out in Arizona same ranch as your fa- as your grandfather's correct so how many generations of your of the ranch that your father was on how many generations was that that was the same that would have that- been three generations and we had to sell it a few years ago uh, a lot of people have heard about Uncle Rick and. The place kind of got run down, and right. a lot of money got spent in an irresponsible fashion. Right. And after he died in a helicopter wreck, there just wasn't any money to keep going with it. And it was just a, I mean, potentially I could have moved down there. My wife's family is from southern Arizona, and they would have rather, they told her whenever I was talking about going out there and moving to the ranch that they would rather us be 10 hours away than two hours away but on that ranch because it i mean hell it's still the old west because you got people running drugs and smuggling drugs and illegals through the ranch and it's just kind of dangerous huh not even kind of dangerous it is dangerous is it that's probably a very wise thing to do then yeah so the ranch is sold and what and, and your father is what is he doing uh my dad was a banker. He went into banking, and he was an ag lender, and he was kind of one of the most well-renowned ag lending bankers because he knew the industry from a grower's standpoint, not just a banking standpoint. Uh, and now he's retired. Hmm. And he tools leather, and he makes bits and spurs. He engraves hammers for me. Are not really bits and spurs, but like buckles and other kind of fancier things. I know that he, I saw a hammer that you forged from uh, Chad Kimmel. He brought it down yeah. to the Doghouse Forge, and it was an incredible, and the funny thing was, I was a class that I was teaching, and there were some incredible hammers there. It was the craziest group of forged hammers. There was my hammer that John made me, and then there was your hammer with those engraved, and there was a Hoffy hammer that was forged, and then there was an Alex Steele hammer. And it was just like this who's who of hammers. And your hammer took the cake because it was engraved, but when we found out that it was engraved by your father, it really made a fast, I mean, it was this idea of the legacy is just so amazing. Did he, has he, because, I mean, engraving isn't just something you you stumble onto. Obviously, he's. I mean, and it didn't. I mean, I've had stuff engraved by friends of mine, and it looks like you know, a little bit, a little bit questionable. Is that something that he did back in the day, or is that something that? Because you know, honestly, honestly, the, he's a, he's a much better. Well, first off, what you were saying is you've had things engraved by your friends. Western style engraving is just quite a bit different. They call it a bright cut engraving, and it's just a so much different style of engraving than a lot of other people do. Uh, but he started out learning how to tool leather at a very young age, just hanging out in the saddle shop. So our ranch was about an hour and a half from the nearest town which was douglas right 
And so during the school year, my grandmother taught, and the whole family, except for my granddad, would move into Douglas and just stay the school year there so they weren't having to drive an hour and a half into school. And after schools, he would go hang out at the saddle shop, Marlin Saddle Shop in Douglas, Arizona, which is still around. And he would learn how to tool leather from them. And then later, he was... He told me he was on some ranch, and he was like, I wanted to make a set of spurs. Right. And so just kind of figured it out. Huh. And and kind of got hooked from then on. And he took a pretty good break, really, from leather tooling and uh, engraving and did, you know, a hell of a guitar player, really hmm. good at guitar repair, uh, and then raised kids, my sister and I. And just here in the past, I don't know, 15 years got back into it, but has really progressed a lot. Because it, it seems to me that, I, I, and, and, you know, obviously I'm not going to fall into the stereotype of what a cowboy does, but the fact that you've kind of transitioned into being a blacksmith, I mean, I never really thought of you as a farrier, but I always, I mean, I have two of your hammers, they're beautiful, and I've seen the, what you've done and what you've forged, and I'm wondering if there's this, like, connection between being a cowboy and a little bit of metalwork, did your dad do anything other than besides graving? Did he do any forging or no? I mean, he doesn't really do any forging. He's got a really pretty little hay budden fifty pound anvil that he won't even let me look at whenever I come into his shop because he thinks yeah. I'm going to steal Take it. it. But uh, he didn't really do any engraving. And my whole deal of getting into forging was actually through shoeing horses, hmm. as I'd gone to the well shod dot com to go buy shoes right and they said we've got this we've just started this shop night do you forge do you want to come and i was like no but i've tried and i suck but i'd like to learn and so although i wasn't ever a farrier for the public per se i i did shoe horses and that's how it kind of led me into making hammers hmm it's interesting because I've always been fascinated by the migration of anvils in the United States only because it makes it very it makes it very convenient to have a smaller sized anvil for someone who's not a professional blacksmith but who needs to be able to do regular farm farm work you know well and so port- portability and then- portability too but like if you it, when you took when you look at uh, uh, the the probably one of the most easier one of the easier uh, power hammers to get in the United States is probably like a twenty five pound little giant. You bet. Which ten tentatively, I mean not tentatively, which is necessarily for blacksmithing. It's more for like plowshares and fixing some things, and it's not necessary. It's not meant for heavy duty forging. I but agree. now with the advent of you know. Uh, people's interest in, in forging the 25 pound little giant has been you know is a very easy stepping stone into power hammers in the united states well so, and I mean, with int- what everybody's wanting to do of making knives so many people don't need a 50 even right well yeah, they're just they're wanting to take a coil spring straighten it out make it flat you don't need much more than a 25 for that well i would just imagine when your great-grandfather was at his farm he most likely had an anvil just to open and close horseshoes. I don't know if he was making uh, his own horse. I mean, isn't that really what, I mean, that's what the horn of an anvil is all about. The right? horn of an anvil, well, I mean, yes and no. 
it depends on the industry that you're in and the style of anvil. I mean, a modern farrier anvil has got a way different shaped horn than, you know, your typical blacksmith anvil. It's kind of bulbous right. and then comes out to a point at kind of, of a rapid taper hmm. versus more of a, a uniform taper down the length of it of a blacksmithing anvil. Right. But I've never actually heard a whole lot about my great-granddad forging anything and then my granddad was just absolutely useless i was in the truck yeah. riding along with him twice in my life and a wheel just completely fell off the truck and what happened well uh one time he never tightened up the lug nuts after he replaced put a spare on and the holes just wallered out all the way <laughs> and so we were bouncing along and the wheel just falls off and you look at the holes where the you know the post for the lug nut you know where you mount it yeah and they were wallowed out to the size of a half dollar and then another time the axle just slides all the way out wheel included now correct me if i'm wrong is this the grandfather who also went to stanford and was a polo player correct that must have been crazy growing up in arizona your your father you know you you were on the growing up on the farm that was like where geronimo was and then he gets um, he gets accepted to Stanford, and then because he liked sports... Well, he was actually recruited to Stanford because he was good on a horse, and they wanted him to play polo. That, and that's how he got into... And, then and how that's they, how he got into Stanford. I mean, obviously, he was a very intelligent man. Obviously. Uh, but he was recruited to go there just because he was good on a horse. And he had uh, never played polo before. Not that I know of. I think he learned whenever he was going to Stanford and then World War II broke out and he never finished college I think they may have given him a like a post grad or post mortem degree or something right. like that but World War II broke out and they needed people and they put him in initially he was the end of the he was one of the last cavalry cavalry men in the United States huh and very quick, that was for World War II. Very quickly, they decided we don't need horsemen. And so they made him an a MP in India. That's where my dad was. All right, really? My dad was a CB. My dad was stationed in World War II in, in, uh, in India, too. Well, and interestingly enough about him being in India. Two useless Bens. Two useless Bens in India <laughs> yeah. at the same time. <laughs> well... And I feel like you may have mentioned something about this before, but he was in India. Yeah. And his favorite thing in the world was mountain lion hunting. And so while he was there, there was a tiger that kept ta attacking a village. And so yeah. they talked to him and were like, well, you're a lion hunter. Why don't you come kill this tiger? And he did. Jeez. Can you imagine? Oh, I, there are so many great stories about him and my grandmother. Uh, you know, it takes a hell of a special kind of woman to grow up or to raise a family way out there like she did. I, I can only imagine. So uh, once he comes back from, from World War II, he's now he's seen not only Connecticut, but he's seen India. When he comes back to Arizona, then what happens? Uh, just kind of business as usual. He started importing. He was the first guy to kind of bring in Aberdeen Angus, which, you know, back in, everybody hears about Angus steaks nowadays, and the right. Angus board did a hell of a job with uh, 
promoting that. But back in the day, everybody just kind of had cows. Right. And so he was the first guy in that part of the world to start bringing in Angus cows, specifically from Scotland. Hmm. And he did all right at it. So, pardon me, keep going. No, that's about it. I mean, it's, there's not a... Not just a whole lot to say about raising cows out there. It's just well, working your ass off 90, you know, all the time. I was going to ask about ranching in general. Yeah. I Part of me wonders, I, I have no idea, are you basically just keeping the animals alive until they're sold? And, and then growing them? I mean, you're just there, basically getting There's a getting little bit more than that. I mean, there's kind of selective breeding. There's trying to... Okay. Uh, you know, you hear about, and I've talked about it, making a nut cutter, and you know, you got to work your cows and what those are used for. So, you bring your cows in once or twice a year, all their calves. Say you've got a really great cow that you happen to know is bred was bred to a really great bull, and you want to propagate that line. You will leave that steer intact but the rest of them you know you cut your bull calves castrate them uh you warm them give them shots vaccinate all of that brand them so everybody can know that they're yours in case they get out uh but yeah i mean a lot of it is just trying to keep them alive make sure they're fed and healthy don't have disease it's gotta be hard I mean, it's physical work. It's physical work. It's hot. But as I said, I, even today, half of what you're doing, in the, like in the summer, just making sure you got water. That's, that's the crucial thing. And then we're kind of dry right now and making sure that you, you can graze this one pasture where you got them and then move them to another one later. And then hopefully by the time you get back around to that first pasture you took them out of, Hopefully you've gotten enough rain to be able to put them back. So when you're looking for places for, I mean, when you're looking for water, you're looking for plant life? No, it's it's more like drilling wells, uh, running windmills, solar wells, electric wells, all of that. But those things break. Uh, some of them just don't produce enough water, as much water as you'd like. And then if that's the case, you know, I've got a well right now, windmill that's down, it's broken. And so I think we're going to put a solar well in there and hopefully it can keep up and and last longer than four months. Gosh, it, it uh, just seems like it's such a stress. I mean, you know, I, a friend of mine's a farmer and he in this, this particular summer has gotten some decent rain. It hasn't been a big deal, but there have been years where it, it's been bad. I just can't imagine the idea of you're, you, you, the, the idea that you're going to not only, I mean, you could possibly lose all these animals because you can't find water. You don't, you don't lose all your animals. If shit gets real bad, you sell them. You sell them before they can yeah. die. I mean, oh, you try geez. to keep them as healthy as possible, but then if, and oh, so 2011, we had a drought here and it lasted from 2011 to like basically 2014. Ugh. And we had zero rain. And so 2011, it quit raining. And I think I sold all the cows for, you know, and I, I run the ranch for someone else, but I told them, you know, we, we've just got to sell them. We can't 
keep feeding them. And it turns out it was a good move. And fortunately, the people that I run this place for are not solely dependent on the income of this ranch. I've got friends, good friends that run their own places and that's their income, their sole income. Right. And that's pretty depressing to see those folks go through such a hard time and have to sell their cows and then for the next three years have no way to make any money. What do you do? How do you, I mean, this is such, I mean, you you don't think about how farming and uh, ranching, it's such a gamble. It is. You know, there's certain things that aren't. I mean, you know, you you can if you're looking at the and the fact that your 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 grandfather was an do you, did he learned agriculture or uh, economy he was an economist or uh, ag econ degree ag economics. So so you also have to be a little bit of a gambler because you can't possibly know anybody all the ins who's and outs of what's going to happen. Anybody who's raising cows for money is gambling because you cannot control the rain that's the main thing is you can't control the rain and so say it doesn't rain and you think well i can start buying feed and i'm going to feed them and then it'll start raining again you can't guarantee that it's going to start raining again and like i said in 2011 it quit raining and it didn't rain again and you can't bring in a, a truck full of water you can't well, get you some can, water bottles yeah there are guys that i know that were hauling water there's people i still know that haul water every day they'll haul in hay and feed it feed hay every day but it's it, it, the gamble is of how long can I can afford to keep feeding hay, keep trucking in water before it rains? Because you're losing. Because every time you bring you're in hay or water, water you're every losing time. money. Every single money. time. That's the whole point of having a ranch is you have places for the goddamn cows to eat. Exactly. I'm so stressed out by the thought of have what uh, you're sitting in your closet talking to me and I'm thinking you're thinking I got that goddamn but windmills about the I got to fix the windmill who knows when it's going to rain again you know I I'm pretty good time to make I was cameras. not always this way but nowadays you know what shit breaks let's fix it yeah oh hell something else went wrong let's fix it and my dad, my dad is not very good about that. If something breaks, it's oh fuck, it's the end of the world. Well, your grandfather too. I mean, oh yeah, he, I mean, but he's letting letting the wheels fall out of trucks. You know, but we can stomp around and be pissed for an hour and a half right. or an, an entire day, or we can just get back to work and figure out how to fix it, and then continue on doing what else we need to do. This is what interests me about you know. This podcast was really me just being able to talk to people that I like to talk to about anything I wanted to talk about. But really what I'm fascinated by in terms of talking to makers, I don't care what the, I don't want to hear about, I'm not interested in your bandsaws, I'm not interested in, I'm far more interested in the person that you are and how you came to be so self-reliant and making stuff. And when you say that, you know, your dad, you know, then everything was the end of the world, your grandfather, he let the wheels fall off the truck, he didn't give a shit. But you, you seem very calm and cool, and this, the ability to see a problem and then address it and then and build on it in a very positive way makes you such a fascinating person, and that is the key to being a blacksmith. Uh, it is, and you know, kind of going with that story, I got a funny story for you. I'm ready. Uh, Tell me funny stories, because all of a sudden, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm seeing like this Woody Woodpecker cartoon of this of, of, the, of, the, of the carcass of the cow outside, and I'm like a little bit n- nervous, to be honest with you. I'm ready for a funny story. Well, all right, so a lot of people have listened to 
the Axe and Iron podcast where I talked about Uncle Rick, and I never really yeah. talked a whole lot about what went on from there. Yeah. So I'd worked for my Uncle Rick, and I'd had enough of that. And a guy that was, you know, my so dad. So just, just to tell your, just to tell your, just to tell the listeners, the Uncle Rick wasn't very nice to you when he when you worked for him. No, Uncle Rick wasn't very nice. Period. And he and what did he? He used to urinate on you. Well, seems not, like a seems a, like a very strong a, thing to do. You know, not exactly. The thing okay. is, Uncle Rick, he had this deal, and people, I'm going to try to do the theater of the mind thing. I love it. Okay, so Rick would come up, and he would just look at you with yeah. this look of disgust, and he'd put his fingers up, kind of like if you were going to had your the palm of your hand yeah. towards your mouth. Yeah. But he'd put like you were going to smell your fingers, and he yeah. would just sit there and put his fingers up against his mouth. Big, big dramatic inhale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sigh of disgust out, and he'd yeah. look at you. Maybe put his hand back up to his mouth so you couldn't see it, and he'd just look at you out of the corner of his eye and just. I can't believe how stupid you are. Oh. I just cannot believe you would do something so stupid. You're the dumbest motherfucker I've ever met. Oh, Uncle Rick is me. And then, his... as you're getting your ass chewed and being made to be. A centimeter tall. Yeah, yeah. The urge to pee would come upon him, and he would just have to just unzip and pee while he's standing there talking to you. That's so weird. And not turning away. We're facing each other, and I've got to pee, and I'm going to do it. So that was Rick, and I'd finally had enough of working for Rick. And so there was a guy in Lordsburg, New Mexico, a fellow named Pecos Shannon, which is a great name. Pecos Shannon? It's a Take fucking a great name. Yeah. Uh, he was a pretty well respected by my family, and so I yeah. drove over there one day, and I said, hey, I want a job. You got anything going on? He said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I need to uh, wean a bunch of calves, which weaning calves in that country would involves me riding out into this 10,000-acre pasture by myself and trying to gather up individually a mama cow and her calf, getting them into a pen, getting the cow away from the calf, and then loading that calf into the bed of my pickup. Oh my god! That sounds terrible. <laughs> it was a I best. I learned more. I learned more at that place than I've ever learned anywhere else. And I, so I, I go and I talk to Pecos, and he says, "Yes, I need to do it." So the first day, he's like, "You got a horse?" And I was like, "Well, not right now." And He's like, well, I got this gray horse right here. I'll sell him to you for a thousand bucks. He isn't any good. And I'm like, well, I don't have a damn, I don't have two nickels to rub together, so no, I'm going to pass. And he was, well, you can ride him anyways. So I rode him, went out, and I'd gather all these calves, and I was driving a 1967 GMC ton-and-a-half pickup with stock racks on the back. And stock racks are... Basically, a flatbed pickup with real tall sides made out of expanded metal going yeah. all around it to enclose it. So it's basically okay. a small trailer, but on the bed of the truck. And so I'd load up my my, my shitty gray horse in the morning in the bed of the truck. I'd go what out. What's the horse's and, name? Uh, his name was Gray. Okay. He didn't have a name at this point. Okay. So I'd go out every morning in this shitty gray pit or shitty yellow pickup with stock racks with this shitty gray horse right around just getting a fight and i mean just being tears mad at this horse 
and gather these calves up and then load them into the bed of the truck then try to load my horse into the truck with the calves so they were fighting and shitting all over each other Jesus uh, and that was my life for a while and I'd go home every night I lived in a jail cell and whenever I say jail cell it was a cinder block building with no just a plywood roof no insulation it was winter and it was just cold as hell i mean i burned every single thing i could find in my wood burning stove including my rocking chair which was a pretty damn sad day when you don't have a chair to sit in at the end of the day but i kept doing that and you know that guy taught me to rope better he taught me a lot about working cows on the days that i got to work with him and I got to be very self-reliant then yeah. and it was problem solving and then problem solving with that horse and getting him tuned up and he turned out to be a really fantastic horse to the point where whenever I quit I was like well Pecos I guess I gotta buy this horse from you even though I didn't I was making a thousand dollars a month before taxes I was I told him I gotta buy this horse you know what do I owe you thinking it was gonna be a thousand dollars and he was like no it's five thousand dollars Oh my god, like, what? what an asshole. Oh yeah, I, it just kind of pissed me. I've never gotten over it, but I was he was like, "Yeah, that's a really fucking great horse." That's $5,000. What $5, a piece of it. What how what was the distance between what was the distance in time between 1,000 to 5,000? Was it within the same year? Uh yeah, but it was What an asshole. It was uh, 10 11 hours a day on that horse every single day. Every day. I mean, Dude. I rode him from sunup to sundown every day. So not only are these ranchers gamblers, but some of them are scum. They're, yeah, they're, yeah, you I know. I mean, that's... There's a lot of assholes out there, but it I, that just goes with every profession. I just can't get... Oh, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, so so the, what was your... So, so, that, so That was where I really, I would say, came into my own as one as far as skill working by myself problem solving and then just being self-reliant right i think that's i think that the best thing that people can have is self-reliance i agree like i have total i have i when people say they can't do something it just kind of like ugh. even i mean even the stupidest things it's just like you don't have to you know, well you have you tried this. you can maybe this. you ought to try a little bit a maybe little try, bit maybe try just a little bit now let's get back to Uncle Rick. So okay. Uncle Rick had a physical. So this is the great when you painted this picture. He's 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 obviously this is all show to a certain degree. I, I'm can, I'm slightly convinced. This is my own my own theory is because Uncle Rick was was Ben's was Bill's brother. I've done a little research. I'm convinced that because you were named after his father. I think that there was a little. I think that there's a subconscious animosity. No, of no, the, Rick, no. Rick treated his own boys that way. Rick had like by the time I made it out there to the ranch full time, Rick had already run off all three of his boys, and they wouldn't. Some of them wouldn't. He had three boys. I think at that time, one wouldn't talk to him at all. One would come help him out just if he like really desperately needed help, and one went a completely different direction and became a surgeon. The smartest of them all. Yeah. Jeez! All right, so my my, I've been thinking about this. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Uncle Rick's an asshole because he did, He's jealous of. Ugh, I'll uh, throw that whole theory Rick, out the window. Rick had Rick had issues, and that's you know the thing is, he, 
There's another Rick story coming on. Yeah, no. Rick, no, Rick, no, was, Rick was bipolar is basically whatever, or oh, manic really? depressive, however you want to say it. He oh, had really? He had issues. You don't say. Uh, so, Easter. Yeah. I was the only one at the ranch, and I roll up to Rick's house at like 6 o'clock in the morning. I go to his window to get my marching orders for the day, just see what needs to be done. And Rick was like, well, it's Easter. And I'm like, well, shit, okay, what do you need me to do? Because I just figured he didn't care. And he said, why don't you, why don't, here, I'm going to give you some money, drive into Douglas, hour and a half into town, hour and a half back, drive into Douglas, get us some KFC, for, and we'll have Easter lunch. And I'm like, okay, we, this, this is good. I like the way this is going. I nice. called my dad and told him on my, on my way into town, you know, I'm going to have Easter. Fried chicken. Yeah, I'm going to have fried chicken with Rick. And everybody's kind of excited that maybe I'd made this some sort of breakthrough. And so yeah. I show back up to Rick's house, and he's like, what the fuck are you doing here? It's like, well, I was bringing you the fried chicken. We we're going to have lunch. No, you should have eaten that shit on the way back. You need to go over here and fix this water. Oh, my God. Rick. Rick. Hey. So, <laughs> you know, that's got to be a very, I mean, obviously he, he had mental illness to run his children off. Well, and, it, you know, for me, it was that was kind of a punch to the dick. I didn't yeah. last just a whole lot longer after that. Right. I, uh, it sounds like he didn't last. Too, I mean, no offense. Don't no, take this the wrong way. Well, he didn't last too much longer either. Well, I got over it. I, I, you know, I'm one. I can realize it's not me that has this issue. It's Rick. Right. Well, it must have been kind of tough when he. I mean, he was in a pretty. It was. It sounds like. I mean, I would imagine dying in a helicopter accident is a pretty uh, terrible way to go. Well, I think that was number seven of the helicopters he wrecked. Wait a second. So he was flying the helicopter? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Rick, and that's where some of the financial issues of the ranch came from. Yeah. Actually, possibly majority of them is Rick got into, you know, you probably wouldn't know about this, but a lot of places nowadays, it's cheaper and easier to hire a pilot in a helicopter to round up all your cows than paying eight or ten cowboys to go out into a pasture and round them all up horseback. Right. I can only imagine. And so Rick got to be a helicopter pilot or helicopter cowboy. But the problem was Rick was a whole lot more cowboy than he was helicopter pilot. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. You don't <laughs> no. have to apologize because I mean, it's just, I'm just imagining him. So he took helicopter No, everything lessons. you're imagining is right. So he just bought a helicopter before he knew how to fly it? No, he took lessons. He took a lot oh. of lessons. And honestly, at times he was showed a lot of, you know, helicopter brilliance he could do some pretty neat shit he had to get a license uh you can't just get a helicopter and fly it without a license everywhere but uh so he bought this helicopter and he'd go out and he'd gather cows but as i said he was more cowboy than pilot and so if a cow wouldn't do what he wanted to do one he had a pistol in the helicopter with him and he just starts shooting them with shotgun shells not just like full-on bullets but he would he would shoot at them other times he'd clip a you know his tail rotor on the ground there was one helicopter one one wreck (laughs) so how many times how many helicopter wrecks has he been was he in i think maybe seven Jeez, he really he really pushed his luck though yeah well one wreck it wasn't even really a wreck so 
my dad happened to be at the ranch at this time while Rick was still alive. I was gone. But Rick was getting a load of hay on a semi-truck delivered. And so the guy had unloaded the hay, and Rick showed up in his helicopter to come pay him. And instead of just landing his helicopter on the ground, Rick thought, well, I'm going to show off, and I'm going to land the helicopter on his trailer. (laughs) And he did. But he didn't shut it off after he got out to talk to him. And so it just rattled off the trailer with it still running and ruined it. You're kidding me. No. So it's running and it's slowly vibrating Just off the side of the trailer? Just vibrated off the side of the trailer. Fucking Rick. So that's 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 the accident number one. That's a, that is so embarrassing. Uh, yeah. Because yeah, you know. when, when it hits the ground, the propellers are like flying all over the place, Yeah, right? one, once those little helicopters, and he was flying Robinson R-22s, they're little helicopters. And once they hit the ground, I mean, that's it. They might can salvage a motor or something, maybe some of the instruments, but, you know, as far as that particular helicopter, it's not like you can just put some rotors on it and away you go. Yeah, I would imagine that, the, the, you know, like, I've been to uh, the, uh, I've been to Dremel bit, you know, and it's never the, <laughs> the arbor is never the same. So I can, I only imagine what a, uh, a helicopter, so that's accident number one. So No, that isn't acc- that's not accident number one. Uh, uh, I want... I, I might need a. I might need a whole. We might need to have a, all all six accidents that led up to the the last one. Uh, you know or what? I don't more. know. I don't more. know exactly all of them. One is a. Uh, another one. It was just too hot to be flying. You know, a helicopter. Cooler weather is better in a helicopter. And whenever it's 112 outside, the air's too thin, and so you don't get a whole lot of lift. Huh. And he was I didn't up. Know th- that. Yeah, I I didn't either until him. Thankfully, I wasn't in in it for this one. But he, they were up north of Lordsburg at a place called Red Rocks, New Mexico, at my aunt's ranch. Former aunt, I guess she's still my aunt. I I still can't. Remember. It was Rick's former wife. Uh, they were up at her place and they were trying to find some cows. And occasionally, Rick would have somebody go up with him, just to have an extra set of eyes to look for cows. Right. And they were up there doing that and just lost all lift and dropped, just dropped out of the air. And then he just landed on the skids and it was, no, no, was no, okay? no, it, no, it, that was another one. Every time I talk about one of these wrecks, that helicopter is fucked. That's it. There's a quarter million dollars gone. Oh my God. So who does he have to convince that he needs another helicopter? Uh, no one's saying to him, Hey Rick. Let's just maybe we should just get a jeep or something, because <laughs> it just seems like helicopter flying isn't for you, and ultimately it really wasn't. It ultimately it really wasn't, and Rick was not going to take no for an answer. So I think the last few helicopters were just straight out out of pocket. He wasn't gonna, he couldn't get insurance, and so he was just having to pay for them. So he's got like, he's got like a quarter million dollars. What did you say? How much the helicopter? Quarter million. All right, so he's got almost two million dollars in a, in, a, in a wrecked helicopters. Yeah. Jeez. Two million dollars that could have been better spent keeping our ranch in better condition. Yeah. But. So, if you don't mind me asking. Go ahead. I mean, what what happened with what was the last one that ultimately? So the took last life? one, honestly, was not. The last one was just a flat-out accident. So he was north of Phoenix. He was gathering some cows for another ranch. And whenever I say pasture, I mean, you know what a pasture is. But whenever I'm saying pasture, I'm talking, as I said earlier, 10,000 acres or so. 
And so he was gathering a pasture for a ranch out north of Phoenix. He got it gathered, had everything pinned, and he was traveling from one pasture to another to go gather it. And up there in those mountains, they have those power lines that are go across these valleys, and they're real long, and they hang down. And this one, he was just traveling from one pasture to another and clipped that power line, down he went. Now, I was on the impression they put those balls on the power lines to make sure that doesn't happen. Maybe they should have put more balls. <laughs> Rick could have used a couple more balls, and then he would have been fine. Yeah, maybe so. God damn it. Well, look, Rick lived the life he wanted to live. Uh, Clearly, uh, you know, he probably and, went out the way he wanted to go, too. He, he probably did. And, you know, one thing, I'm hard on Rick. Rick could be a really great guy. And as I've said, he talks shit to anybody he worked with. Right. But if anybody else talks shit on him, I mean, by God, we're going to fight if you keep saying another word. So he would just talk horrible about me to me. But if anybody else said anything... By God, we're gonna throw down right now. But this is obviously this is this is we're talking like deep man, like you know wild animal domination situation. This is like any type of manipulation that you can you know create dominance. This is <sighs> you pull your penis out. I mean, my dad used to have we my I grew up on a on a gentleman's farm. My dad was a winemaker, and he'd pull his dick out to take a leak, but it wasn't like to prove a point. He's just like, I gotta take a leak. I, I guess my well, I would he do it bladder. to? You, would he do it to you face to face? No, he See, would turn his that, back. He's on no, the, everybody, everybody. I hell, I I, I work don't know on this ranch either. every single there. I everywhere is my bathroom. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it doesn't I'm, matter where I'm at on this place, but I will turn my back to everyone. I have a terrible story to tell you about that. By the way. I had my before this shop that I'm in now. I had to work out of the shed in my in my at my in the backyard of our house, which is I made it work. In my opinion, when you have something as small as if you can make something small work, then you're in business. And I had yeah. a great little shed. I had I had I had things on the on the doors, and it was like perfect. I didn't have to. There was no walking around. I mean, it was literally like, and I just my I I didn't want to take my boots off to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I didn't want to go back in the house with my boots on. I didn't want to take my boots off. So I'd go into the backyard, and I'd take a leak. And I got very comfortable just going. Because I grew up, my dad used to take a leak everywhere. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I, and I have we have hedges. And all of a sudden, I hear someone call for their husband. And I'm convinced this woman saw me, and she wanted to alert me that she knew that I was peeing. By calling for her husband. She didn't say anything. But she was just like, Dave! And, made it, and, then, and then I turned, and I could tell she was staring at me. But she wasn't going to say anything. She just didn't like the fact that I was peeing in my own backyard. And it was very embarrassing. And well, I my, told my maybe, wife. Maybe you should have used your Manscaped groomer before then, and she did just watched instead of calling her husband. She, just, she had a couple kids, and I understand. I didn't think anyone could see me. And I told my wife, and she's, well, you, obviously you can't pee out there anymore. And I said, well, no, I just have to find a better place. And my dad was the same way. And my dad was so comfortable peeing. This was a great, this is a great, my dad also had an enormous penis. And and it was, and, and he, was so when he would pee, he would pee, and it was always shocking to me because I was just like, Jesus Christ, am I going to be like that someday? Because obviously it doesn't seem like, right now it doesn't seem possible. He had a huge penis. It was so infuriating, even to this day. I'm just like, God, he has a fucking huge penis. <laughs> so he would pee all over the place, 
And then we would be driving up from the city to the to his vineyard. We'd stop at the supermarket to get the groceries for the weekend. So every time, by the time we got to the grocery store, he had to pee because we've been coming all the way, you know, an hour and a half from New York, and he's just, you know, older guy, he had a, you know, a huge bladder or a small bladder. So what he would do is he'd get out of the car immediately. He'd have his pants zipped down before he opened the door. He'd open the car door, and then he'd pee in between the car door and the car. Uh-huh. Well, his wife, and I, I was used to it for, you know, 13 years. He gets in the parking lot. He pees in the parking lot. He's got. He oh, has this some, is in the parking lot of the grocery store. Of course. Of course. But he's created this like, barrier with the door. So people can't really, I mean, you see whatever. I mean, you know, you got a fire hose. You can see this, the, the, the pathway <laughs> of the urine coming down. You obviously know what it is. But so she was super, she was disgusted by it. And then one time she turns to me, she says, Jeff do something about this and i'm like okay and i t- i took my hand and i pushed him in his i took my hand i put it on his on his back and i pushed him into the car while he was peeing he peed all over the inside of the car and he was furious How old were you? you 14 i bet he still tried to spank you pretty good he didn't you know he only spanked me once he, he was he, there wasn't a lot of spanking, but he was pissed. But, but my, my, I turned to his wife and like, well, there you go. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I'm going to pull it back, put it back in his pants? Fucking thing is huge. Well, and also, I mean, listen, lady, this disgusting. is your husband. You do something about that. It was so gross that it was so gross that he was doing it, but it was even gross that his wife wanted me to do it. What do you want me to do? You're going to try to humiliate me by like, <laughs> what? How am I going to tell my father with his giant penis he can't pee in the parking lot? Do whatever the fuck you want. You got this big dick, you do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> I can't. What can I do? Yeah, no, but I'm with you. I'm. The man's going, the man's taking it. Maybe we can have a, have a polite conversation when he's finished, but I'm not going to do anything right now. Well, it's clearly, I mean, him pulling his penis out and talking to you while with his dick out is completely 100%. Rick, Rick's inappropriateness was completely for the dominance between him and whoever was at that ranch. But he ran all of his kids off, which sucks. Yep. And then he, he ultimately, you know, was he married when he died? Uh, no, he was divorced at that point. And, you know, the thing is, he, my dad's older than him. He'd do it in front of my dad, too. And my dad yeah. just, whatever, Rick. He must have had a he must have had a death wish. I can only think. I mean, I mean, how can you not? How I'm, can you crash all these helicopters? And people just can't keep see me them? nodding. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, he had a death wish. Yeah. Obviously, ob- that's crazy. So let's just get back into get back into you. All right. So you've the Uncle Rick thing is fascinating, but you 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 went to that class at Wellshod. You no, it wasn't to, even a class. It was just hey. We're having a shop night, every, just kind of a free forging deal. If you don't have tools, we got there. There was a guy there that, and he no longer works there. Uh, still good friends with everybody. Horseshoer, but he's the only one that was kind of more blacksmith oriented. Like he was a horseshoer and a very well respected one, but he also was pretty accomplished as a, just an actual blacksmith as well. Right. So we'll go. It was just an open shop night. Right. So not a class. So did he teach you any basics or? So my first night there, the first thing he, he was like, have you forged much? And I was like, well, I mean, I tried and I'd gone over how I'd tried to forge before and it was just complete failure. Uh, he was like, well, here, here's a horseshoe. Make this straight. And I was like, mm-hmm. all right. So I did. And I, I kind of flailed and I got some little pointers there on just how to move metal. 
And so I got it straight, and he was like, you like that? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, all right, make that into a circle now. I was like, but couldn't I have just made it into a circle earlier? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, See, but now yeah. make it into a circle. So I did. And then he was like, you want to forge weld this into a ring? And I was like, fuck yeah. That is black magic to me. I yeah. never thought I'd even be able to forge weld. And so he did one. And, you know, of course, he turned a horseshoe into a ring in like three seconds. Took me half an hour, maybe more. But then he showed me how to weld. And then he did it. And that it just completely... It took some of the mystery out of it and made me think, well, I can do this. And so ever since then, I've just been completely hooked. So then how did you make the jump to, because I would would imagine, I would imagine because of your experience um, on the various ranches, you've obviously had to shoe horses in the past. You know, it's, well, I would imagine, you know, we, our friend Jonathan Porter is a farrier, and I, I, he took me with him to a couple places. Jonathan Porter it, is, a, is a farrier. I was a horseshoer. See, that's what I'm getting to the point, because he was, he's hired, he's hired by people to shoe his horses who don't want to shoe horses. But, I mean, I would imagine if you're on a ranch, you have the, you, you sometimes you don't have the choice, you have to shoe horses. I had to shoe horses, and the, I learned whenever, I started learning whenever I was working for Uncle Rick, and I was learning from three Mexicans who don't speak English, right? and I don't speak Spanish. Right. And so, it was really difficult, I did a really bad job, but I managed to never cripple one up and keep horseshoes on them and then whenever i moved to lordsburg that guy was somewhat of a horseshoer damn sure not a farrier but a horseshoer and he kind of pointed me gave me some pointers just because i had to shoe my my shitty gray horse at the time right and i i kept learning uh and then i've got i've got friends now like i don't even shoe horses for the ranch here anymore i started out doing that and then i hurt my back doing something stupid right and i i've got a buddy who does it and the you know he's a farrier and he's you know shaping horse shoes hot drawing clips which is a little tab on the front of a shoe or you have two of them kind of on the sides that keeps that shoe from sliding back and shearing off the nails i mean those guys being able to see a horse walk and say well your horse isn't walking quite right i can do this to it to correct it and make it travel correctly i had the the reason why i was mentioning is because i would imagine that you had some experience even just swinging a hammer in general but that talking about the farriers I actually have exactly the kind of horseshoe you're talking about. Jonathan Porter sent me one. He's tr- test. He's getting ready to test for the journeyman um, farrier yeah, position. Uh, uh, American Farriers Association journeyman test. Keith gave me one of those fully, a, a, a perfectly, a, um, a horseshoe that's a ring that's forge welded, and it has those clips at the front yep. that I can't figure out how he was able to put i'll have to post a picture of this particular horseshoe how he was able to put these there it's almost like a a tab at the front of the horseshoe there is no forging process that i have seen yet that requires more precision than drawing a clip they they're i'm gonna have to post a picture but they are super beautiful and jonathan i've already talked to him he's gonna come on 
down the line on the Fantastic. show. He's just such a great guy. He is a good. Yeah, guy. I talk to him. I talk to him once a week, easy. Yeah, he's just such a great guy. He ignores my calls. He does. Such a dick. Porter, Not what's really. going on with you, JP? Not really. Okay, all right. So, so you 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 love the forge welding, and then how did you get into making hammers? Instagram. Because your hammers. Now, in regards to blacksmiths and farriers. I would consider the type of hammer that you make closer to what a farrier's hammer is, and it's very similar to the fair, the similar to, but I think that you've, you've done the hardest thing to do, which is separate yourself out from other hammer makers, which has become one of the hardest things. The only thing I can think of that yours looks similar to is uh, the Jim Poor style of farrier hammer, which seems to be the standard. That's the gold standard. That's a standard hammer. The faces are round. They're short. They're short faced. They're not like they're not really forging hammers, really. Uh, I mean, they, don't, they don't look like forging hammers to me. If you watch, have you ever met Jim or seen him swing a hammer? No. You see him one of his hammers in his hands, and it is a forging hammer. Yeah, he, oh, I've of never. I, he's one. I mean, in my opinion, farriers swing hammers better than anyone else, and it goes back to like that drawing a clip. That's the most precision piece of forging that I've seen done, and they can do it repeatedly. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I've, I've tried to kind of go the more farrier route. And part, you know, I got into hammers through Instagram. As I just, right. I went to that shop night at Wellshot, and I was like, shit, I'm all in on this. I am doing this. I caught, I... I before that I'd been a knife collector, like pocket right. knives, and I basically sold every pocket knife I had. I bought an anvil, I bought a fire pot, like a good cast iron coke fire pot blower. Just kind of sold everything from one hobby and went into another. And then I kept. I just gotten onto Instagram, and I saw these guys making hammers, and I was like, well, that seems kind of neat. And at the time, I had a guy working for me out here because we were running a bunch of yearlings, and goes back to the cattle thing. Yearlings have a tendency to be wild and get sick a lot. What are they? Uh, like a year old cow. Okay. So a year old cow, and so I had another guy. It's rough country out here, and we've got a bunch of brush. It was just too much for one guy to take care of 100 yearlings by himself. So I hired this other guy, but at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the times we just didn't have a whole lot to do. And so I started messing with this forging and I was like, well, can you help me strike a little bit? And so I, the first hammer, the first number of hammers, maybe 10 hammers were all done with a guillotine tool uh, with him striking. And after that, I was just hooked. Yeah. Because it's it, hard to beat. It's hard to beat forging because there is this incredible permanence to the decisions that you make, and when you do them right, the the, the permanence is immortal. You know. And when you do them wrong, that same the, permanence. The problems is are the problems are nor, uh, immortal. Immortal. Too. Yeah. I think that I, I I gotta tell you when I first started forging, under John Ledford and Uri Hoffey, um, Fred Christ, blacksmiths. We didn't do any tool making. We made tongs just because that was the, the classes that we were I doing. I love there making tongs. There was no tongs. tool making. My favorite Pardon thing me? to make. Tongs are my favorite thing to make. I think I am convinced they are one of the best things you can make as a blacksmith because I get all that question, what should I do first? But I'm fascinated 
I don't know where. I've, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I, I was a welder first, and when I started the blacksmithing thing, it's you, you see these little mistakes, and they just nod you. And you, ha- you, you have to get to the point where you're just like, all right, well, the next one's got to be better. Yeah. And that's the best part. That's the best part. And you, know, that- you can have this particular small thing of immortality of mistakes or, or victories, but you got, it's the next one that's kind of more important. And that's, that's exactly what made me stick with hammers. Is So my first hammer was obviously not perfect. It was real off to one side, you know, one face, the flat face was going to be way bigger than the, the round face, but I was able to just chop that off and yeah. make it even, and it ended up lighter than I wanted. But the pursuit of uniformity of a forged hammer, because I'm generally, I've made a lot of stuff, but I'll only make one of them, and then I'm done, I'm never going to do that again, I've got zero interest. But a hammer, it was such a challenge to try to duplicate it yeah and it just drove me nuts not being able to do it again and now i feel like i've I've got that uniformity and i'm able to offer you know a repeatable reliable product to people do you still enjoy it you know i do I can still take the same pride in a really, really well forged hammer as I did with that very first hammer. Yeah. But at times, it's easy to get burnt out on it. Of just making okay, so I've got well shod orders a batch of eight hammers, maybe four two pound hammers and four two and a quarters, and that gets kind of old. I'd like yeah. to get more into the furniture. I made that chair. And I've always wanted to do more furniture, but at the same time, how do you how do you say no to something that pays good and is still you can take pride in? But the other thing is, is and I think some of the people listening to this don't real some of the people don't realize this. The difference between a hammer and making a knife is with a knife you got to just make it thin and light. But no one's gonna say to you this. I actually had one time I had a guy a chef wanting a knife. And he gave me an exact weight. Usually it's not the case. Usually they're just like, I want one of your knives and that's the way it is. But when you're forging a hammer, you have to start off with a specific size and then you are keeping it that size. You're not removing material. So how do you, so you have to be incredibly focused in regards to the starting weight and what happens if you're light or what happens if you're heavy or what's the well, what's the amount of room to give because with hammers weight is everything to me like i can totally tell the difference between singing a two and a half pound hammer a two and three quarter pound hammer and a three pound hammer i can tell exactly just by my swing i you know when you get started whenever i started hell i might use a two and a half pound billet and i was just happy enough to have it forged and well enough that I was able to grind off half a pound of weight. Right. You know, and you lose some to scale, your eye takes out a tiny bit, you know, basically negligible difference. But whenever you're starting out, you're just trying to get it as close, just the, the basic shape correct. But then as it goes on, you're like, well, shit, I don't need to, every time I'm forging a hammer, this could be a complete hammer, just a finished product as is. And then it becomes, 
you know, kind of of a math problem of how much weight do I need to really start with to get down to have enough to grind my hammers. And my hammers require a little bit more grinding than everybody else. A lot of other people's just because I grind the sides of the faces and there's some added work. But it's a trial and error is basically it. Because I would think that that would be the more difficult. Like for me, the anxiety would be, all right, I have two, two and a half. I have two, two and a half pound hammers. They're going to make five, two and three quarter pound. I would have to really, really dial it in because all of a sudden you finish that hammer, you put it on the scale, and it's not right. Is well shot going to send it back? I don't. I don't give anybody hammers that aren't right. Like if if I if I you order a two pound hammer, you're getting a two pound hammer, and that's within about an ounce. Look at you. Look at you. You know. You know Uncle Rick. That's for sure. No, I I try to. I take great pains, and if it's heavy, it's always better when it's heavy because you can always grind more off. Whenever it light, it's light. Then it's like, well, shit. I guess it's going to be a pound and three quarter now. So, how much time was it before between the open shop? To your selling hammers to Wellshot direct? Uh, whew. maybe about a year. That's unbelievable. That's incredible. That's incredible. I don't think people realize how hard it is to to do something like that. And it's the fact that Wellshot was, and they knew you when you couldn't do anything. I couldn't do shit. And then a year later, you're like, hey, you want to buy my hammers? Like, oh yeah, sure, why not? Well, and they, you know, they told me I I like your hammers but we've got to have a certain level of consistency here and not just in weight but also in look we've got to right. be able to put a picture on the website and all of them to look, look like that. pretty well like that picture and so i just focused on consistency and it there was a whole lot of rejects initially yeah. and then i got a you know i so i went from a guillotine tool to a, i bought that little giant 100 pound hammer and I was doing really good, and then I thought, well, I I can up my oh hell, brain farted on the words. No problem. Uh, Your efficiency. I can be more efficient with a press, and so I bought the press, and it was just horrible, horrible. It's kind of the same. There's a learning curve to all those power tools. People, you get a power hammer, and you're like, well, shit, everything's gonna. I can do anything with this, and it's gonna be yeah. easy. It's just gonna make itself. And I got the power hammer, and then, game. yeah, I had to learn how to make the, the shit on the power hammer. And then I got the press, and for six solid months, I could not make a hammer. I Every hammer I sold was made all on the power hammer. Yeah. But then once I got the hang of the press, it's it's glorious. I've, I started learning how to forge on power hammers, and I didn't even, we had a press, we never used it. Uh, I don't. Even, I don't remember us using it once. I, we might have used it one time to pop a hole in something, but really, we didn't use it at all. We were just using the power hammers, and I was super spoiled because we had two power hammers, and we were just you know one with you know crown dies and one with combo dies, and we never put the flat dies in. We just used you know. And the time I then I thought I know I know how this works. It's tip tap tip tap. You you know you you have the control on the foot and no big deal. And then you get to a press, and all of a sudden it's like. You mush everything. It's and just I, completely I, ruined. It's everything is so it's it's so easy to screw shit up real slowly. 
real slowly. That's the worst part. Like if it's you know you've I've done a few power hammer leaves on a power hammer. Okay, one two one a couple too many hits, no big deal. But with this with a with a it's the slow mush. Yeah, and you're watching everything. you're watching yourself screw it up. It's not like a bad blow on a power hammer where it's like bam. Well, that one's not really where I wanted it, but I can maybe salvage that. It's just you're watching it one inch at a second or whatever it is. That thing is completely fucking ruined. So when you so you made you figured out the hammers and then you started to do your your uh, your handles. Yep. How do you get the wood? Where do you get the? Because I, I look at all because I have two of your hammers. Oh, uh, the I've wood had, sucks. I've had hook. I've well, I've had hickory uh, when I was I was helping uh, John Ledford and we were doing his version of a of a poffy style hammer. We didn't. We only did a couple of them. We didn't do many, and I and it was so hard to find hickory or ash. How do you yours is the wood looks so good. I mean, it looks like where are you getting it? And <sighs> there is a local hardwood supply store an hour and a half away. I drive down there. Some days they've got zero hickory whatsoever. Other days I can get two boards. And if I can get two good boards, that is a banger of a day. And because it's dry, it's, you're in Arizona, you're not worrying about nothing spreading. And, it's done all the splitting it's going to do. In Texas, I'm sorry. Yeah. So you're so all the movement that that wood is that wood you don't have to worry about the the, the cows can't even drink because it's yeah, so dry. No, it's out. it's dry. And so unbelievable. It's it's just luck of the draw on what I can get. And I, you know, I went down there the other day and they didn't have anything. They had absolutely nothing. Uh, I don't like. This is a personal preference. I don't like ash for a handle. I feel like it swells and contracts more with humidity huh. than hickory hmm. and so i choose not to go with it huh. but uh it's very interesting i never even i never see the thing is that the funny thing is is when i was blacksmithing with john ledford at uh, center for metal arts which was uh also the the construction wing was called fine architectural metalsmiths we didn't baby hammers and we just used them and if they fucking broke because the, the the big thing with the hoffy hammers were they would say to me before Hoffy would show up, uh, Uri Hoffy, master black, oh, yeah. big blacksmith, and he, all would happen when you teach the classes, there was a pile of Hoffy hammers, and when you had the hot cut tool on, everyone would always hit underneath the hammerhead and start to nick the, the inside of the wood. So what would happen every so often was a hammer would just break off, and it's because, you know, you're basically, you're, you're, you're hitting the handle onto this hot cut and you're just destroying the handle we were just used to like all right you broke it let's put another one on i, I we never were, we never babied anything and i think a lot of it also had to do with the fact that my first forging hammers were cast hoffy hammers which did you it sounds did like own those hammers pardon me did you own the hammers well it's a long story but he would teach classes at the center for metal arts and he brought, I don't know how the former owner, Ed Mack, had their, I don't know how it worked, but it was all their hammers. And I ended up getting one, and I was shocked at how good this cast three-pound forging hammer is to the point where I was unused to the idea of a forged hammer, completely unused to it. Like, it didn't make any sense to me. This is the only hammer I'd ever used. When Hoff would come, this is he would say, this is the only hammer you need. And you can still buy his cast hammers, which he says, even to this day, they're the most balanced of all my hammers. I have a, for, I have a couple hammers that he forged for me before he went to the hospital. And then I have a couple cast. 
And it's we never babied them. Like we but, never worried about well, the handles. That's what I'm asking though. Is you were at CMA, were those CMA hammers or were those your personal hammers? They were because I will beat the shit out of somebody else's hammers. I'll beat the shit were, out of anybody else's anything. They My were own student stuff, hammers. I they were student hammers. Okay. And they they get student hammers. And it's interesting because you, as a hammer maker, he would he when I I mean I had no other no other no other uh, there wasn't wedges. He didn't wedge in his yeah. hammers. He had a system where he used this stuff called Sikaflex, yep. which is like well, how would you just? It's like a rubber. It's like I, it comes in a cocking. It's like tube. an aerated rubber. It swells. It's it's kind of like that. It's like a rubber version of that spray foam. Exactly. So he would make the 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 hammer would fit into the eye with room to spare. He'd coat the inside of the hammer with the Sikaflex. He'd stick the eye in. He'd let it dry. He'd grind it all off. And I have the original hammer I got from him that Ed Mack and John Ledford gave to me as a Christmas gift or something like that. I have been, and I used it for years. I and mean, we're talking heavy duty forging railings. Anytime I forge, I forge that hammer. But that was your own personal Sikaflex hammer. You weren't, you weren't missing shit with your own personal hammer. I was, there's some nicks. All right. I, I wasn't, well, I mean, you know, accidents I mean, happen, I mean, but I mean, you're, not, you're no. less worried with it when it's your own. Are you more was, worried when it's your own? Uh, you know, nowadays, if I have somebody come here, I try, I, I steer them clear of some of my hammers. Like yeah. every, those students get the petting house hammers yeah. I got back in the day. But like, I was always fascinated as a hammer maker, all the different ways to make hammers and set the eyes. And one of the things that you do that's so great is your wedges are these beautiful, you've, you're a fascinating guy because you have this, this classic cowboy, I mean, your voice and everything and your and the way you dress, you wear starched jeans, and you always have a button-down shirt, which drives me crazy. I don't know how you don't have rust rings around the collar. I don't know. I don't know how that doesn't happen. But hard you, work and, then, and clean living. Look at you. That's at wildly you. untrue. But you but you have these hammers that they're very classic to a fair. I think that most people would see them as a farrier style hammer. And I, and I even had you make me a hammer with a square face because I just needed the, I, I don't get the whole round faces for forging, but that's just me. I, I, I was, came the from the school. I, I came from the school of you actually, you use the corner of a square face as the peen too. So it, for me, like the rounded, the rounded thing, I, I, I couldn't, I just never get around it, but you've created this hammer. That's so, unique but it still has this classic style and it has this flair to it like your hammers have a lot of flair to it it's very similar to you because i actually got a message from my buddy jamie saying that picture i posted of you with this you get your patagonia jacket on you got your ray-bans on and then you have this blue beautiful blue cowboy hat you have this you kind of go back and forth between the uh, flare. i don't want people to get it completely wrong i don't wear a blue cowboy hat i didn't i didn't I wear call a gray hat with, I didn't call blue, you with a blue ribbon listen to me I'm that not, was i mean it's an pimp. incredible look it was an incredible look you have total style but you have the classic cowboy look with it you once sent me a picture of your jeans and they were starched to the point where they stand up straight you but you also have this you have this flair that it's like you i see the same thing in your hammers like they're this classic style but you have underneath the eye there's a little bit it juts out a little bit it's got a little bit it's very your hammers are very voluptuous in the in the in the in a most you know complimentary way and with this kind of it's like this this checkerboard wedge you have the standard style 
but it's very, very, you have this beautiful, it's just, it's very much you. I see a lot of traditional, but a little bit of flair. It's a fascinating, you're a fascinating guy. I, you know, kind of like you said with my hat, which I thought, yeah, it's actually right behind me. Um, and that's sort of of a Western thing is you got standard jeans, cowboy boots, plain shirt, yeah. very often blue, nearly white. always blue for me, not actually white. But uh, like my my boots that I, I punch cows in, are, the tops of them are hot pink, and I've got yeah. the mud flap girls on the back. Sweet. And I it's and that goes with a lot of people who do this is it's just everything's kind of standard yeah there's just that little bit of of personal trait that you got to throw in there something a little wilder i think that's so great you see that with cowboy boots and stuff like that but there is with you especially with your hammers because i mean you look at hammer makers and stuff like that and there are definitely people who are trying to create their own set themselves apart and you know i'm a knife maker so you know it's it's super super hard as a as a craftsman to set yourself apart so people when you see your hammer when i see jake ferrum's hammer i know it's your yeah. jake ferrum's hammer when i see your hammer i know it's your hammer when i see john ariani's hammer i can i know it i just know, you know it's the, trash the swell of his hammer the swell the, the the way he makes his hammers the way he does his handles he he hates it because i always change his handles but that's just you know that's just that's me but I'm fascinated by hammer makers because there's, it's so difficult to create your own style, and you've done that with real elegance. I mean, well, your hammers I, are I very really elegant. I really appreciate that, and I, I mean that because, just like you said, there are so nowadays there are so many hammer makers, tool makers, just in general that you can't reinvent the hammer. You can only try to set yours apart in whatever way you can. And so, for me, it's. And it, it kind of comes from talking to Jake Farron, just exceptionally clean forging. My hammer design came from like a double bit axe. I like the way that that looks and that right. swell on there. And then the wedge. Well, I mean, why you've got everything else going on that you put so much effort into. Why overlook this one little piece that ties everything together? But that's a relatively new decision that you've made. It is. Because my first for... hammer I got from you doesn't have that, and the second one I have, I'm like, oh, good. You put the, you put the new. I feel like Maybe I got six the older months, version, six the months new or version. so. I mean, it's such a piece of flair that's just. So, I'm gonna have to put a picture of that too. It's such an incredible flair, and it fascinates me because it is very similar to what you were saying in terms of the cowboy look. Obviously, cowboy hats are meant to give you shade. They're not meant for any yeah. other reason right i mean they're meant for the look is the look i don't understand the the the, the i mean i'm every time i see you you get your pants tucked in you got a sh your long sleeve shirt i never see you in a t-shirt it it baffles me i'm in right now i i'm thrilled like when i wear shorts and i wear a t-shirt and i don't let people see what i look like because i don't care <laughs> but at the same time it's like i could never i could never be in 105 degrees wearing a pair of starchy pants you know the whole deal with like a pair of jeans and a long sleeve shirt is it's protection from the elements i hadn't got to put sunscreen on i hadn't got to worry about bugs biting me whenever i start sweating it's air conditioning if there's a little bit of breeze right and that's that's the long sleeve shirt deal and if you're riding through a pasture on your horse 
it sucks this time of year because usually you got to have shafts on and it's not assless shafts i've heard you say this before i never said assless i've never said assless shafts. somebody on one of the not other me. podcasts said assless shafts and just always never. drives me nuts because if you All have shafts are assless exactly if you don't have if you're wearing leather pants if they have an ass on them you're crazy but you know, it's, I never, it's hot, I never but it's also you of wearing it, assless chaps. Okay, well, that's the name of the, okay, that's the, that is the that might be the My, title of the show. I never accuse you wearing assless chaps. <laughs> no, so you know, and you got different types of chaps for different weather in the in the winter. I wear shotguns, which go all the way down to my boots, like to my feet. In the summer, I wear chinks, which are half length. Uh, but yeah, it's all of it is there's function in all of it not just style and it's largely protection from the elements right well you know the funny thing is is i have all these questions but i enjoy i'm enjoying so much i'm enjoying so much talking to you i'm gonna feed in a couple questions that doesn't make me feel like we're just like you know doing a whole um you know i hope we got uh, to some questions because i pushed hard on Instagram. Well, trust me. Let me just tell you. The funny thing is, is I ask the listeners who are following me on uh, the Full Blast podcast on Instagram to ask questions, and you get asked for no bullshit questions. Well, you might as well have asked for double bullshit questions because you, <laughs> between, Dave Cardilla, wanted to know about your beard, and I was just like, I'm not asking him about his beard. I have a beard. Goes, it's from Good Genetics. He and you know he goes he goes he Dave goes oh no, no you got to ask him he'll laugh. And I'm like, he's not going to laugh. Nobody cares how straight his beard is. He's got an incredible beard. So that I answered the question for you, and he answered it too. It's genetics. Yep. But this question kind of tapers in um, to your history as well. Right. This comes from Skull and Spades 13, Brett McAfee. Love great Brett. dude. Love Brett's a good dude, man. Real good dude. He'll be on sometime in probably August-ish. Um, I want to hear your thoughts and your experience with Forge and Fire and why it's helpful slash not helpful to the community of Smiths. Um, Jeff, feel free to retell the amount of times they tried to sink their teeth into you. Uh, you know what? For me personally, I had a fantastic time. I got nothing but good to say about that whole deal because I'm not a knife maker. Right. I don't know, but that's I had li- quite literally made, you know how I got on there. How did you get on there? Well, we'll tell the, tell the listeners. So I, I, they Jeff, ask me every Jeff, they ask me every year. Yeah, they ask Jeff every year, and Jeff put like a letter that they had sent him on his Instagram story, and I text him, "I will go on their nerd show." And so Jeff put <laughs> me in contact with them. I just forwarded you the email. Yeah, you did it. You made it happen. Well, and so I got on there, kind of through you, which I would not have not, applied either way, not, anyways. Right. You didn't get. I didn't trust me. If if well, you put say, oh, me in. Jeff you put you. me in contact with the guy that was trying yeah, to get I you on there. Gave you the producer. And so producer. I went on there. I'm not a knife maker. They were like, we need to have 15 to 20 pictures of quote unquote blades. Which why can't they just say knives? Right. Uh, no, blades that you've made. Of, yeah. And so I had to make a few knives promptly to get them pictures. But I went on, and it was great. I had nothing. Everybody was very nice. It was a free trip to New York. Uh, the $30 a day per diem doesn't cover beer, but that's whatever. Yeah, 
you could probably get thirty dollars a day is tough because lunch is at least seven dollars. Yeah, I'm, I'm seven not to ten dollars. Yeah, and I'm not eating yeah, Taco Bell. Thirty? No, no, no. But no, just any kind of di. Thirty dollars a day is cheap. You can't eat. In, we were in. You were in New York City. No, we were in uh, Connecticut. Queens, right? No, it was in Connecticut. Oh, Connecticut. Wherever. Yeah, in you can't. Thirty dollars is some bull. You can't eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner for thirty dollars if you're buying no. it out. You can't. Well, do it and unless like you go to the, Roach the breakfast is included at the hotel, and the breakfast was actually pretty decent. Lunch, you're generally eating there, which was some sort of garbage, like the the. The cast, or not the cast, the crew of the show determines what you're eating for lunch, and I don't want fucking hummus for lunch. All right, listen. Now we're getting into something interesting. This is the stuff. This is the stuff of a fortune fire. I want to know. So you show up in the morning. You had your you had your continental breakfast at the Hilton. Ah, uh, it's the, a little better the, than a the, continental breakfast. Like you could order food and they would bring yeah. it to you. It's not All like right, so, you know some some eggs Benedict with handmade hollandaise sauce, but it's still pretty good. Fine. You, so you're happy. Breakfast is, you know, breakfast is, I mean, eggs, you know, you can't, people can't complain too much no, about breakfast. It's, it's bacon and eggs. And you're eggs. probably nervous as it is. Oh. So you probably don't want to eat that much anyway. No. And I'm kind of hungover. Uh, whatever. You know, it's fine. <laughs> it's super fine. So, so you burn your per diem on, on beer and eggs Benedict, and then you get to the show, and then you, 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 you obviously, you guys do the first act, and when did they say break for lunch? Boy, shit, Jeff. That's I don't really know. I was so damn nervous and worked up the whole time. The whole yeah. thing is just a blur. I mean, that was so far outside of my comfort zone that I've forgotten so much already. It just all runs together. I would imagine that with, I mean, forging in general is not easy when people are watching you. But, like, with all the lights and stuff, I would have thought it would be incredibly intimidating. And they all... I didn't, even have to, I didn't even have to be forging to get worked up. Like, they'd walk you out and do a microphone check, and my blood pressure would just go through the roof just right. standing there doing nothing, right. knowing that the cameras are not rolling. Oh, really? And I couldn't help it. So, so when they break for lunch, all of a sudden they say, cut, and everyone says, okay, what do you guys want for lunch? No, we, did, we didn't get an op- option on that. They're all talking elsewhere. The crew, as I said, decides what is being ordered for lunch. And then they ch- they're charging you out of the per diem. No, no. Like I said, breakfast. <sighs> I was breakfast, hoping you were going to tell me. No, that. I was hoping no. you were going to say they're going to. Basically, the per diem, the per diem is just for dinner. So okay, the breakfast so. is included with your hotel deal. Yeah. It doesn't come yeah. out of your per diem. Right. And lunch wasn't either. Now, right, if, so you got, if you got dinner, the boot, you can make it happen. if you got the boot a little bit earlier, like the guy who goes out first, I guess he's stuck at the hotel all day, and he's got thirty dollars to spend on beer. <laughs> he's screwed. Wait, so 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 the first guy can get thrown out before lunch? Uh, before lunch on the second day. <gasps> so he gets thrown out by lunch. They bring him back to his hotel room, and he just sits there. As far as I know. You can't go to the airport direct. Take me to the airport. I want to get the fuck out of here. No, he's you know oh, hell. Poor he's bastard. getting a free trip. He could have gone and done other things if he wanted to. Not in Connecticut. Connecticut. But sorry it was, for no, it was like a half hour from terrible. New York City. If I'd have gotten the it's boot first, I'd have gone. Stanford is a lot of things, but is not a half an hour from New York City. You could take it. Yes, you could take a train to into New York City from Stanford, but it's like all I can think of is you. you all right, let's break for lunch, and you go back to the hotel room and wait it out, and then they take him to the hotel that they take him to the airport that night. Or that's the thing. Uh, no, is, they, is they, that was the one thing that you know they've already got everybody's airline tickets booked for the three days, and so 
if they didn't have if you got cut first I can't imagine the airline fee and they got the money for it but it just the pain in the ass of getting somebody to the air airline that night or whenever or first thing that morning when yeah they're not changing the tickets. they're not changing a flight for that God, so you get kicked off the first day. Now, if this was filmed in New York in, in in Queens, which I thought it was, it used to be filmed in Queens, Long Island City. That's my understanding. Then all of a sudden, that's because I know that's 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 where my buddy, Mare, that's where Mareko Momasi met my friend. Of Momasi um, Fire Art? That's right. Momasi Fire Arts. Uh, that's what, where he met. What the, is it? Morocco Momasi? Dude. We get messages about that. We get messages about how they misspell his, his mis, mispronounce oh, his I name. I love Morocco Momasi. terrible. My, All right, go ahead. So he, Morocco was in, so, in Queens. I, he was in he was in New York, and they were filming in Long Island City. So if you're getting thrown out in Long Island City, you're you now you have three days in the, you have two to three days in the city. But you're in fucking Connecticut. You you must have a have to have a handler, and you probably don't know how to take the train. I mean, the tra- it's not easy to get the train from from Stanford all the no, way. No, I wouldn't know the how city. to do shit. Because it's not the same. I can call if you were in the city, you could walk it. around. I can, but if you're, I don't even know that I can fully call an Uber. The last time I tried to call an Uber, I apparently was trying to sign up to be an Uber driver. I can't even do that. <laughs> That's you'd be, you could be the greatest Uber driver of Connecticut with that voice uh, of yours. Uh, Unbelievable. No, so it's hard. You, it's hard. It's hard to park a Super Duty truck in those parts. <laughs> I this to me is the best part of Forge and Fire. There has then they must hire someone to babysit the first guy thrown off. No, he just got to hang out. He was just wait like whenever we oh, got, hang out on the stage. No, 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 not on the stage. He's at the hotel. Hanging out in a hotel. No, for you three get days? kicked off. You are out of there. So, 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 but you still have to hang out in the hotel for the next two days until your flight. Which would suck, Dick. Terrible, Dick. Yeah. You're you're stuck in the worst state in the the worst state in the Northeast Connecticut. You can't you don't have anyone to take you around. You're stuck in that hotel for two days, and you just have to sit there and watch TV in the in the air conditioning and eat the eggs Benedict. I guess and then no, and then where do you eat the lunch? Benedict. And where do you eat the lunch? I guess you oh, eat the lunch at the hotel. Is, I don't know. Maybe if, that's where your thirty dollars you, per diem comes in. This fortunately the like guy who got torture. kicked off first was nineteen, so he couldn't buy beer. Oh, he couldn't be. That's even. It's even worse. Maybe it's worse. I don't know. But the $30 that, that per day, t- if you can't buy beer, goes a little bit further than if yeah, you... Yeah, you get a nice steak, but in your you know, nice steak in the hotel is still a shitty steak. There, there, that, to me, is something I never thought about with, with Fortune Fires. What do you do when you get thrown off first? I would say to them, look, just please, I'll pay the extra to send me home. Let's just no, take me to the airport you're, you're, now. No, you're, home. you're Jeff Fader. You, get a, you have your wife come get you. Right. I mean, how right, far? Yeah. How right. far would it be? Oh, for me, I would have driven home. I would have been like, yeah, I, get you, the, I would rip the the microphone off and say, "Take this and shove it up your ass," yep. and I'm going to go back on the 684 and go home. Yeah, screw you guys. You know, I'm I, going home. Yeah, I'm going to go home. But I mean, if you're coming from like wherever Texas or Arizona, you're stuck in a shitty <laughs> Hamptons Inn for the next three days until your airplane flight. That's prison. Uh, but also, that, it, part of my my experience. Some of it was not ordinary, just outside of actually filming the show. One, the four of us got along fantastically. I was in, you know, it's crazy. I'm 37. I, well, I was 36 at the time, but I was the old man. I was the grandpa yeah. on the show. Yeah. Which is just crazy. But then. It's annoying. It is annoying. I met some people 
kind of fortune fire adjacent that were there for fortune fire but not to be competitors or anything else like there's a gal that's a photographer for the new york times that i've gotten to be friends with and she's uh national geographic has shown her pictures on instagram and stuff like this really big time photographer who i've gotten to be friends with and it's just neat meeting everybody in the whole process and then also oddballs that you didn't expect so i i I had a really great time i would do it again but not right now i'm still i my stress level has not gone down since then it just i i can only imagine and I remember you telling me that you had your, your the you told me the nightmare scenario that you had, which was a Coke forge, a hand crank Coke forge, and forging out in sunlight. And no power tools. And no power tools. I gotta say, forging you need when you're forging, you need to be in a dark place to, to see the steel, especially knife steel. Yeah. Because you can't overcook it and you can't undercook it. So if you you don't people don't realize that if you're forging in bright light you can't, you can't see the color of your steel see anything i can't think of anything that to me would be the that to me would have been like i can't do this all right like so they told i, me I had a little happen, and they didn't show it i had a little ace up my sleeve for that whenever it came time to quench my knife sunglasses nope i had i had recessed a little area and the end of my handle and i had a rare earth magnet super glued or epoxied into the end of the handle of my knife or my hammer tricky motherfucker so when you did that before the show oh yeah i also had a ruler like my handle was marked out as a ruler and i had that rare earth magnet so whenever it came time to quench i was able to test it without having to worry about light and quench did they know they did, did they know you had that they did and they said that's part of your hammer motherfucker but there's that a reason why the they tri- didn't where did you come up with that idea oh shit i don't know it just it's just one of those things came to me i would never have thought i would never have thought i got to embed a fucking magnet into my hammer well, they said you only, so I can you only got three tools you get to take you know, my, the first thing I do whenever I go into my shop every single time is I put my ruler back in my pocket, in my back pocket. Right. Right. So I don't have a ruler. That one's out because I, either way. So I put a ruler on my handle and then the quenching You just deal, like mark notches. No, I like I marked it fully out with a Sharpie. There you go. Uh, and then the idea. magnet. Now, what was your other? What were your other two? Well, so that was a hammer, but the hammer is three and one. Yeah, the hammer is three, and one, three hammer. and one. That was kind of my one ace up my sleeve that I really Dude. had that was beneficial. And they did, you know, another thing they didn't show is shit just went wrong on on the show. So my clinker breaker, the whole time I'm going in the beginning, and I keep breaking, my, trying to break my clinker. My clinker breaker doesn't work. And it took me way too long to discover this. And finally, I just had to find a piece of rebar and start jabbing it down in there. And I'm pretty sure I lost half my coke or my fire half the time I was doing it. But my clinker breaker didn't work. And then another guy, uh, guy Stephen Brady, he's Flatlander Forged on Instagram, who I met there. It's turned into a really good friend. About right, right when he's getting ready to quench. Like, he's right. going in for his heat to quench his knife. He's thermocycled. He's done all of it. His handle just completely 
free spins on his blower, so it doesn't work at all. He's got no air going to his fire, and so he's like, hey, you know, right here, my shit's broken. And everybody just gives him this deer-in-the-headlights look. All the production people don't know what to do. When we're down to the wire, his shit isn't working, what do we do? So I'm like, hey, dude, I just quenched my knock. My fire's great. Get in here. Look at you. And so he does, and it worked out. Dude, you're a fucking good dude. Would you ever consider making a limited edition hammer with a fucking magnet inside? I, yeah, but it wouldn't. God I mean, damn it, would, it, that was such a good idea. I don't know what benefit it would be for people in in day to day use. Now, Can I will imagine? say, like farriers, like the little driving hammer that they drive the nails into through the shoe into the hoof. Those have have magnets in them, but for day to day use, all it's going to do is collect scale. Yeah, that's right. That's right. At what point before you were going to go on, did you think I'm going to put a magnet in this handle? Maybe about did a week. You, maybe about you, a week and, ahead of time. And was it exposed? Was it exposed? No, you could, so you see, could see it. See I mean, it, you could see it. I told them about it, and they said that's part of your that's hammer. Your hand. And they also were like, that "That's a, a great idea. idea. I've never seen that before." Who said that? Uh, one of the production guys that were checking over all of our tools to make sure everything was good, and they were like. Well, what could they? What would be bad? I mean, uh, what, what, how could you cheat? I don't know. You could, but it's one of those deals. I, obviously, they didn't show it. I don't think they want people seeing something that That's easy and such a f- convenient. God damn it! That might be one of the most clever ideas of all time. I I was pretty damn proud of that one. Do, I, I'm like I'm dumbfounded how what a good idea that was. So if you're going to go on Forge and Fire. Fucking glue a magnet, glue a magnet your hand. into the handle of your hammer. And glue it good Dude. so that shit doesn't come out either. God damn it, that's such a good idea. <laughs> so so what were the now that I need to know what the other two tools were, because they gotta be as good as oh, that hammer. No. That my like, other tool tool my tool selection sucked after that. And honestly, I didn't even like my hammer. I made a hammer to go on that show. I made a two and a half pound crossbeam, and I'm I'm a two pound hammer swinger. Right. So I didn't even use it before I went, and I just gassed That's out. Tough. Horrible. That's tough, man. That is super tough. Uh, I tell you what, that's the one thing that people do not realize. You got, you can't just show don't up. Don't mix. You don't. Can't just if show you got up. a hammer you like and you're comfortable using it, use that hammer. Don't think, well, I'm going to be doing a bunch of hammer hammering. You know, it's going to be. I need to move more material. You can move that same amount of material with the hammer you're comfortable with. Don't go heavier. I, I, this is very similar to if you're running a marathon and you just buy new shoes right before the race. Oh, I could see I, that. So it's exactly yeah. the same thing. You got no chance to you, break them in. You, you, I. Any time I've ever done when I when I go see the modern forge guys, or we're gonna do a hammer in, or we do my um, maker camp, or when I before I go down to see uh, Jonathan Porter to do a class, I spend at least I need two weeks of forging every day, at least an hour a day. To rebuild up my calluses and to get in shape. I was just gonna and say your hands getting that. The blister. hands are the worst. My hands get my hands get really calloused and then they lose everything. Yeah. And then they get super soft. And I when I had there was one guy back to your hammer down at Doghouse Forge. There was one guy there's two guys who brought these four pound four and a half pound, they could have been five pound Alex steel hammers that I'd never seen them before. I guess Alec had done this like a hundred of these hammers or something like that. 
I had never seen them before, and I picked this. I look at these guys, and I'm thinking to myself, I cannot see. You know, they were their IT guys during a week, and they're just coming in with these five pound hammers, and I'm just looking at them, thinking, there's just no way that these guys are going to finish that with this hammer all that day. That sounds horrible. And it was, and, and I they said, didn't Let me see that. And I, and they, they, they lasted. They lasted five or six swings before they dropped down, and then ended up going from a five pound hammer to a one and a half pound hammer. Like it would, it would the the distance between the hammer they started with and they ended with was so. And I said, let me. See, I want to. I know Alec. He's a great guy. I wanted to swing his hammer for a while, so I forged for a little bit. I was like, I ain't gonna. This is it for me. I'm not. This. I can't do this at all. So I'm fascinated by the fact that you just that ha- extra half that half pound, pound killed me. You know, and, it, and it's a different hammering technique. Is like you know, guys with with three plus hammers are generally choked up quite a bit further. Where I leave, I got long handles, and I try to use all of it, and yeah. it just wore me the hell out. I I don't I don't blame you. You know, actually, I was just watching a, a live feed from Alex Pohl, who's just a great guy. Yeah. And, um, Alex and Moonshine and 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 um, Joe. Yeah, those limeys are good swinged- dudes. They're great dudes, and he swings a two-pound um, Swedish-style hammer that Cliff made, and he says, "I like to whip this thing around." And it's the same thing with Lynn Ray, who's a master bladesmith. He uses a very small hammer. Same thing with Fred Christ. He uses under. They all use two-pound hammers, and, it, and with long handles because they can whip them faster and get more velocity. Well, see, and that goes back to what we were talking about with with like a Jim Poor rounding hammer and seeing Jim Poor whip one around. Versus a three or three and a half pound hammer is it? It's all about how you use it and getting that whip out of it. Anything's a forging hammer, you know, within reason, if you can use it correctly. And I just prefer that longer, whippier handle. All right, so I'm going to ask you the tough question: What if you had changed whatever you changed? What would have changed to see you in victory in that episode? What would you have changed to see victory? I don't know. Stinking. You know, know, I guess I I guess I do know. Whenever I went into that show, I was thinking like a guy used to power tools, power hammer, press, that sort of thing. Right. And so I grabbed this humongous chunk of iron thinking, well hell, I got three hours here in a Coke forge. Obviously, ideally my Coke forge would have worked properly right from the get go. Well, that was not the case, which is fine. But it would just be a different mindset of everything's hammer and tongs and not press because what right. the piece of steel I grabbed, I thought, well, hell, I can work this into a usable piece of steel in two heats with a power hammer. Right. I ought to be able to do it in five or six with a hand hammer, and I couldn't. Right. Just thinking wrong. Well, but people watch that show. They see the big blues in the background. You just assume that it's going to be. You know, you didn't expect. No, to be that was my, that was my worst nightmare. Was going there with yeah. outside, and I I'm a spoiled guy. I've got a power hammer and a press, and I use yeah. them all the time. And if I got to draw something out, I'm not going to draw it out on the anvil just for the hell of it. I'm still going to use the the power hammer. I tell you what, that would be my worst. When you told me, when you said, "Well, the worst nightmare happened to do it," as soon as you said it was outside, I was like, "Okay, I'm out. I can't." I can't forge. I can't forge it outside. No, it, it was shitty, it. and it damn sure was bright and it was hot. 
Oh. And it was, you know, the heat wasn't just horrendous. It was so humid. Unbelievable. But, so, Ben, what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? You have a good, you had a good experience, not to mention you were an excellent competitor to help when all those producers were, during the headlights, you came in well, and you helped your, is I, did, now, did that guy end up beating you or? Yeah, he beat me. Look at you. That's fine. What a gentleman. Hell, I helped the guy that won too. It's, I mean, it's, I'm not there. I had nothing to prove there. Yeah. I am not a knife maker. I have not been a knife maker, and I don't claim to be a knife maker. I went there for the experience to have a good time and to promote hammers, which, oddly enough, they did on the show. They did? How'd they do that? I have no idea, but they mentioned it numerous times and gave me, you know, close-ups of my, my hammers, and uh, it was it was great. I accomplished everything really? I wanted to. But they didn't say your last name. Shit, I hadn't even seen it in a while. <laughs> I remember. Wow. So they were paid to really help you promote. Did you? No, you actually, you he did. He uh, One of the guys said Ben Snoor is known for making hammers. Holy shit. You slipped through. I did. You're the trickiest motherfucker who's ever been on there. You slipped through not only your full name and what you do making hammers. You also slipped through with that excellent move with the with the, with the the magnet. Yeah. You know, I honestly, as far as it goes... Go there, be nice, be nice to all the guys that you're working with. Y'all are all there to have fun. It's $10,000. That isn't going to make or break you. Everybody have fun, and the nicer you are, I think the better press they give you. Look at you. Is the best Look I can you. tell. The last question. The last question. You, you, are, a tricky, you are a tricky guy. <laughs> I, I'm a, that is two impressive feats. Impressive. As far as I'm concerned, that's better than being a champion. I, I, you can't buy that kind of press. I mean, if you did, you do you think you sold some hammers from that oh, appearance? Undoubtedly. Oh, really? A lot of hammers from Wellshot or through you direct? Both. Well, over twenty. Yes. Over a hundred? No. Dang. So like sixty? I don't know. I'd say maybe forty. Fuck me, that's a fucking... Look at you, yeah, you did better. 40, so you probably, you, you made out better than winning the whole goddamn thing because you only would have won six Gs. Pretty much. So you made more than six Gs in hammers. Yeah, it was, it was pretty good. You are the champion. You are the champion. I, now, this is, this is, here's, Ben Snoor has figured it out and this, he's made money no, off being, don't, of losing Forge and Fire. I'd rather be him than anybody else been on that show. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Asshole. Don't be an asshole. You know, I, I got one more question, but I, yeah. I felt like we should have ended on that because it was so perfect. But I, you've changed my whole opinion because you're the outlier. You actually lost and made more money than if you had won. I did. Outstanding. God damn it, Ben Snoor. You're the best. Last question comes from Adam Cipher. I can't believe it. I'm stunned. <laughs> Adam Cipher asks, he wanted to know, I love the podcast, and my question is, what's the craziest thing anyone has ever asked you to make? Oh, I hadn't got anything that weird. All right. You know, it's nothing like a pot pot cultivating knife or anything like that. Uh, yeah. That's, that's, the check hasn't, I haven't gotten the check for that yet. Damn it. Did you make it and send it? No. So I you still have it not. sitting around? <laughs> I haven't even started. You know, no, send maybe, the money. You need, yeah, maybe you didn't make it and send it to me, and I'll start a I, new hobby. 
I'll start cultivating. You know, you know what? Cultivating you know what? The that marijuana. might help the ranching business. That <laughs> might help the ranching business. Sorry, uh, sorry to say. So you've never been asked to make any, on any of your hammers, any engraving, anything crazy? Not that I can really think of offhand. Right. Why? Have I told you something? It's been weird. No, I just was. I was kind of hoping you had something. I mean, you're such a fascinating guy. I figure somebody asked something crazy, but maybe because you're such a, a upstanding no, I'm kind guy, of, no, I'm people kind of be afraid a, I'm, to I'm ask a one-trick you for crazy. pony. Everybody knows that. Look at you, Ben Snur. You are you have astounded me <laughs> and our listeners with your tales, tales of Rick, your your dearly departed. Well, not dearly departed, but your departed uncle, who who clearly. I'm sorry that that all happened. Your uh, grandfather. I, I learned your a lot. Great grandfather. You said it all. Well, shit. I had a whole lot of other stories on deck that we didn't even get to. Well, if you want to do one more, I'm wi- I'm happy to tell you. Want to tell one last story, Ben? Let's leave. Let's 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 go into extra innings a little bit. All right. I'm gonna tell y'all about a bad day of work. Yes. In this, I thought of this because you had asked for a bad day of work on one of your deals asking questions and so i started working for this ranch 12 years ago and within the first month i had a truck and they were supposed to get me a cell phone so i talked to the mrs boss and she's like yeah drive into amarillo which is an hour away and we'll get you a cell phone while you're here we'll have you pick up a load of firewood for us so i pick up this load of firewood I'm, you know, which is a half quart of, I think, oak. And I go and I meet her at the AT&T store. And I'm expecting her to just buy me this piece of shit cell phone. But she buys me, like, the brand new Motorola Razor flip phone. And I'm like, this is a pretty damn nice phone. This is kind of cool. So I get it, and I come back to the ranch, and I start unloading firewood, and everything's going good. Unload all the firewood. I'm driving off from their firewood rack which is right beside their yard and the front yeah. of the pickup sinks what the front of the pickup disappears into the ground i'm like what the fuck so i get out and i have driven into their septic tank <gasps> and i'm like oh fuck this is this is this is bad you didn't see it you didn't see there's it. nothing to see Oh, because it's because it's covered. It's, it's dirt. in the ground. It's buried, covered in dirt. It's completely in the ground. There's no like cleanouts like modern septic tanks have or anything. So the front of the truck is in a septic tank. So I get the skid steer, which conveniently is close. I lift up the front of the truck. I put it in neutral. I back it out, and I call my dad. Uh, actually, how do I? Yeah, I call my dad, and I'm like, "Hey, dad, dude, I have fucked up." This is bad. <laughs> I think you can come out here and maybe we can figure something out. So he drives out. My wife... So is there a big hole in the tank now? Oh, a huge hole. Full of shit. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. And so I call my dad and he comes out here. And of course he brings my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, who just... She had just moved here. Just moved oh. from Arizona. God. And this is what she's... Brings my mom... With. And so we're all standing why did, around. Why did he bring everybody? I don't know, because we're a team. All right, there you go. Uh, so we're all standing around looking at this septic tank hole. And I bend over and look at it. And my phone, my brand spanking new phone, falls into the <laughs> shit. 
In front of the, all of them? In front of all of them. I'd been oh. there a month. I had this brand new phone. And it was a phone that they didn't just like go in and, you know, like sign a contract. She paid cash to get me this phone. And so it's like an $800 phone that went in. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm fucked. Time to, time to start looking for jobs. And so I go, I use my girlfriend's phone. Why Alex is my, the lady, my wife. I use her phone. And I call the boss. And I'm like, hey, I had an accident out here. And they're like, oh, really? <laughs> what happened? And so I tell them. And I'm like, hey, you know, I was unloading your firewood. And I was pulling off. And I drove your drove the truck into the septic tank and there's just silence and i'm like well it's a little worse i lose you know that phone you got me it fell in too <laughs> and they just start dying laughing <laughs> which it's unbelievable i mean it's an unbelievable story <laughs> that, well you know it was. It wasn't really a good day, and they had insurance, and so I called it. She's, you know, they die laughing, and they're like, you know, we had. It's probably time for a new septic tank. That thing's been there forty years. They couldn't have been better about it. I called it. They had insurance on the phone. I called the insurance. I'm like, hey, I lost this phone. They're like, really? How'd you lose it? And I was like, well, I, I lost it in a septic tank. All right, we can replace that. We need it back, and we'll send you a new one. And I was like. It is literally three foot deep in shit. It is in a septic tank. I will get it for you, but I am not washing it off, and I am mailing it to you. And he said, we're going to mark that down as lost, and uh, we'll get you a new one out in the morning. So, things may look bad at times. Shit comes back around. It'll be all right. There you go. That's ben the moral Snur. of the story. Things are going to be you all saved right. That, you saved the day. You saved the day. You tried to save the phone, but you saved this podcast. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for being with me here on the Full Blast Podcast. You're just a great guy. Well, thank you very I'm much gonna, for having me. Dude, it's a pleasure. We're going to have to do this again. Love to. Um, I will, you, for sure. We're going to start to rotate through people, and we're going to get you back on. Follow Ben Snur on Instagram. It's Ben Snur. Ben it's Snur. It's like Newer with an S. Yeah, but not Go spelled over. the same. I tell you what. When I, I didn't call him to buy my first hammer from him, I went to Wellshod, and I bought a hammer directly from them. Wellshod.com. And they sent me a pile of Wellshod.com. S-H-O-D. These people are super nice. They sent me a pile of stuff. They couldn't be, have been nicer. They called me. They were fantastic. Go get yourself a hammer from Ben. He's a great guy. Ben Snoor on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Instagram, uh, the Full Blast Podcast on Instagram. Please, please, please leave a review. Follow, uh, subscribe. It helps me. I need some more. I need some. I need. We need to get a little juice going on this thing. So go ahead. And then if you follow me on Instagram, Full Blast Podcast, you can. S- comment and send us questions we didn't get to questions today because ben's too interesting so go follow us there we'll see you next week i got jared thatcher from boot hill blades coming on next week this has been great thank you once again ben and we'll see you next week full blast fat ass if you like this show take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network